Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. You guys are uh, alive today. That's good. That's good. We had a lot of fun in here first service, so uh, I'm hoping that we're going to have a good time this service. Uh, let's pray and get going. God, you are a, a holy God. Um, you're mighty, you're wonderful, um, and you're loving. Lord, we live in a world that, that so much confusion takes place that, that we're often left wondering why. We're often left wondering, what's the point? Um, there, there's a lot of meaninglessness here, and, and it's frustrating sometimes. But God, we know that you are causing all things to work together for, for us who, who you love. So thank you for that. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Solomon and his words that we have today. Jesus, we ask that you would bless this service in your name. Amen. Um, good morning. I'm, my name is Josh Carsonson. I'm the adult ministries pastor. I'm new, but I'm not that new, so you guys are getting familiar to me. Um, if you're new, um, I encourage you to um, kind of check it, check it out. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on that you can't see from where you're sitting. So check out our website. Check out uh, in the foyer. There's an information booth. Just a lot of stuff going on. Come get involved. Um, if you're kind of just, if you're new, you're kind of just wanting to, you know, test the water, see how things are, that's great. We are glad that you're here. If you've been here a little while and you're still kind of testing the waters, maybe you've been here a year or, or two years and you're kind of just holding on to that rail, putting your foot in every once in a while, jump on in. Jump on in. The water is nice. There, this is a great body. Be a part of it. Be a part of it. Um, today, we are starting a five-week study of the book of Ecclesiastes. So um, I'm super excited about, excited about it. Um, we started off with my very first series here with Jonah, a, a fun book, um, a good narrative, a good story. We then went to Zephaniah, which was a really heavy book. I got a lot of comments about hellfire and brimstone. So I thought we'd kind of shift things a little to a lighter book again with Ecclesiastes. So um, some of you laugh because you know a little bit about the book of Ecclesiastes, but we're going to have um, quite a bit of fun with it. Like I said, it's five weeks. We're not going to be going through the whole thing, simply um, just not enough time. Um, so I, I've decided that we're going to just jump through it. I'm going to try to connect us as best we can to fill in the gaps, but, but if, if we did just a little bit at a time and ended in five weeks... Um, just ending like halfway through, if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, we would be left very depressed. We'd be left kind of this miserable congregation asking ourselves, what is the point and what is the purpose? Right? And, and as it is the intention of every good preacher to leave its congregation wondering and confused and depressed, that's just simply not what we're going to be doing. I want to do something a little different in the next five weeks. So open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's right after Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you, please, please bring one. It's a lot easier to see what's going on if you can see the words right in front of you. Um, I know that this never happens to any of you here, but you might know someone who, in the middle of a sermon, just gets lost. You're just like, what is going on? I have no idea what's happening. What is he saying? Well, you can tell that person that if they have a Bible, you can kind of see where we're going. You can see where we've been. You can see where we're going. So I just encourage you, get a Bible, bring it. If you don't have one, there's been someone lost and found the last couple of weeks, go, grab it. Um, I'm sure it will uh, be used better if you take it. 
Uh, if you really want one, come find me and I will give you one myself. So Ecclesiastes, very different um, type of literature in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we basically have five different uh, categories of writings. We start off the first five books of the law or the Pentateuch, um, Genesis through Deuteronomy, where, where God basically creates the world. He creates all things and he chooses his people and it's the story of God's people and it's the story of his law. And then we continue that story with the historical books from Joshua through Esther, where if you were here about a month ago, I kind of briefly summarized that whole entire story. And so those are the, those are the books that tell the story of God's people all the way throughout the Old Testament. And then we have two groupings of prophets. We have major prophets. We have minor prophets. In the major prophets, there are five books. In the minor prophets, there are 12. And in all of these, we kind of get confused a little. You know, what's going on? Who are they talking to? How does this um, affect me at all? But basically, those books are talking about the story of the other books. And then we have this whole other category, which is called the wisdom literature, or kind of the poetical books. We have five books in here, starting with Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon. Um, I think it just really confused me as a kid in Sunday school when we had the sword drill, and they said, Song of Solomon, you know, and you're going through, you're like, it's Song of Songs. I, I'm confused. I'm confused, but uh, we have it. There's a, there's a lot there. Um, we really like these books. Um, as a human, we can really identify with the writers of the, of the wisdom books because there's a gritty honesty to these books. There's an honesty that in Psalms we can see David saying, God, you are so close to me. You're so close that, that you're like, I can just feel your presence in one chapter. And then the very next chapter, he can say, God, you're so far away from me. Where are you? I, I have no idea where you are. You, you, I can't feel you at all. And most of us can identify with, with that, right? We go through time periods in our life where God feels so close. He feels so close. And then other times where he feels so, so far away. And we love these books. There's just such a gritty, raw honesty that we can all identify with, all in our walks. And, and that's basically what we're going to be seeing in the book of Ecclesiastes. So on a small level... Um, the book deals with a lot of general issues of day-to-day -day life that we face. Very general. There's a lot of very practical, um, seemingly on-the-surface issues that we all deal with. Um, and there's a lot more that initially we don't see that we're going to try to get into. That you read it, you got to read it again, then you got to read it again, and then you got to skip a couple chapters and, and find out, okay, there's the answer. So while we're going to be looking at the mundane, we are also going to be looking at the magnificent in the book of Ecclesiastes. So let's just get into it. Verse 1, chapter 1. Today we're going to be going through chapter 1. And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. ESV. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Hey, I remember last week when Andy was up here, uh, he was talking about uh, king David and how at the end of his life, his goal, his job was to prepare everything for his son Solomon to build the temple. So he was gathering all the materials for his son. And on his deathbed, David says, Solomon, you're going to be the one to complete everything. You're going to be the guy. You're my man. I need you. Follow the Lord 
and you will be good to go for building the temple. Hold on to his commandments. And we see what's going to happen with Solomon throughout this book and a couple other side trips that we're going to be taking. Um, side note, kind of just for free, real quick. Who, who was Solomon? Right? Who was his parents? David and Bathsheba, right? And who was Bathsheba? She was the beautiful naked woman who David saw on the top of his roof bathing, and he said, I want that. He took her, he killed her husband, and they had a child. Right? That child was killed. David was super, super sad about it. And after um, he confessed, he and Bathsheba made another child, and that was Solomon. That was Solomon. So, so let me just say this. If you're here today and life hasn't exactly turned out the way that you planned it to be, like if there were some bumps along the road, if you will, God is big enough and he is gracious enough to restore you. Because look what he did with Solomon. Look what he did with a broken relationship. He made a king, a mighty, mighty king who built his temple, who led God's people. So if that's where you are today, just know that God is big enough and strong enough to restore wherever you might be. Wherever you might be. Like I said, kind of a side note, but not something we should quickly overlook. I want us to appreciate um, who Solomon was. Uh, the first and foremost thing that I want us to understand is that Solomon was wealthier, um, he was wiser, and he had more experience than anyone to come before him or anyone after him. Right, let's, let's set the record straight. Solomon wrote Scripture. Right? You and I read Scripture. Right? I'm up here saying, this is what Solomon said. Right? I'm not here saying, this is what I say or this is what I think. We are talking about Solomon's words, not my words. To get another understanding, God comes to Solomon and he says, Solomon, you can have anything that you want. You can have anything you want. What do you want? What do you want? I don't know about you, but I have a long list. If God came to me and said, what do you want? Anything, I'd be going through that list. And Solomon says, no, um, I've been given this huge burden. I am now king. I am now ruler of this, of this nation. I've been given the task to build the temple. And I want understanding. I want wisdom. I want to know how to do this in such a way that will glorify you, Lord. And God says, that's wonderful. He says, you're getting wisdom. And not only that, you're getting everything else that you could have wished for. You're getting all the riches you want. You're getting freedom from your enemies. God blessed him immensely. So Solomon is far, far greater than anyone in here in length, in breadth, in depth of wisdom and knowledge and power. So Solomon was a man that none of us can relate to. None of us can. Yet he was also a man that all of us can relate to. Right? You and I will never know what it's like to have ship after ship of gold and jewels be brought to you yearly. Right? Like maybe some of you do. And if you do, come talk to me afterwards. I have the key to the offering box. I'll lift it up. You can put the gold bars in. You know, that, that small slot. We can take care of that. That's fine. Right? But, the, but the fact of the matter is, we don't know what that's like. We don't know what it's like to rule a nation. We have no idea what it's like to write Scripture. We simply don't. We are, we are very far removed from that. Yet, what we do share with Solomon is a life in the same world. Right? You and I live in the same world that Solomon lived in. We live in a world that is fallen, 
that is broken and that is subject to death. All of us do. So let's keep reading. Chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Okay, I want to unpack this verse a little bit. At the end of 3 where he says the phrase, under the sun. We've got to have some background to this. Um, to, to understand Ecclesiastes at all, to understand what Solomon's saying, we really need to, to have a strong grasp of the term under the sun. And, and really we need to understand what this looks like to read any of the Bible for that matter. We have to start in the beginning. You've got to know where you're coming from. Right? You can't get anywhere if you don't know where you're coming from. Is this not true? Right? Last, last month, my cousin came to visit. He came super late at night. His girlfriend dropped him off at 12 o'clock. She was going up to Seattle, or up to Portland. I was kind of asleep. I get there, he comes in. He's like, hey, good to see you. He says, here, I need you to talk to my girlfriend. She's lost right now. So he gives me a cell phone, and I pick up. You know, we're, we're talking. Um, I need to know how to get to Portland. Okay, great. Where are you? Um, I'm, I'm on a road, and, um, are, well, are you heading north or south? Um... Uh, where's the moon? Is it in front of you? Is it behind you? Uh, it, it's cloudy. Um, is there... Oh, there's a gas station. Okay, right? Like, I have no idea where she is. I can't tell her how to get to Portland if I don't know where she is. And, and this went on for a long time, and I'm new here, and I don't really know things that well. But eventually it came out, okay, I found a street. Good, I can hop on Google Maps. I can figure out where she, where she was, and I can tell her how to get to Portland. And I say this because we need to know where we are. We need to know where we stand in order to know how to get where we want to go. And we're going to be looking at that. And that's essentially what this whole book is about. Knowing where we are. Knowing what's the point. What is the meaning. In order for us to do this with the book of Ecclesiastes, we have to start in the very beginning, which is in Genesis. In Genesis, the very beginning of creation, the beginning of the whole story, where God creates the whole world for his glory. He creates the earth and the stars and the moon and water and land and humans. He creates Adam and Eve, and it's perfect. Right? It's this perfect creation. There was no death. There was no sin. There was nothing that kept Adam and Eve from communion with God. They never made much of anything beyond God. They never struggled with idolatry. They never, they never struggled with worshiping something that wasn't God. And God places them in this beautiful garden. And he says, this is all yours. Walk with me. Know me. Love me. I've created you. This is for you. And there was nothing that separated them. And God says, there's one thing. I don't want you to eat from this tree. I don't want you to do this. And it was a magnificent, wonderful place where they walked with the Lord daily. And there was no death. Then Adam and Eve took it upon themselves to think that they knew more than God. Right? To believe the lie that if they took this, then they would know just what God knows. And in doing this, they rejected God. And in this act, humanity and creation as we know it came undone. And our relationship with God was broken. 
right? Sin came into the world through Adam and Eve and destroyed the order that God created things to be. And as a result of this sin, God punished them. And we find this punishment in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So from this point forward, sin and death and corruption became the standard. Right? We were at peace with creation in the garden, but now we live in enmity with creation. When I was very young, I was told a very helpful analogy of, of a tetherball. Right? Third graders love playing tetherball. You have this pole, you have a rope, and you have a ball. And, and you hit the ball and it goes around the pole. And, and the analogy I was given is when creation became undone, when sin entered the world, that rope was broken. That rope was broken, and no longer is creation, no longer does creation function the way that it was originally intended to be. It's just separated. It's wrong. It's broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. In the New Testament, Paul tells us what he's talking about um, in Romans 8, 20 through 21. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage and corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul says that creation, this world, the world that you and I live in, the world that we function in daily, is subjected to futility, to bondage, to corruption. So like I said, in the garden, we ruled over creation in peace. And now we find ourselves frustrated over creation and frustrated over our lives because our relationship with God was broken. Right? Tetherball is extremely frustrating to play when you don't have the rope. Right? It's pretty much impossible. Right? And, so, and some of you might ask, isn't this a little pretentious of God to render such a cruel punishment for just taking a little bit of fruit? No, God wants us to know that the consequences of our sin is death. So what happened in the garden, what happened in his, pun- in his punishment towards us is, is simply a picture of what's to come in the world to follow. It's simply a picture. So the world that you and I live in, the world that we function in, is not the way it's supposed to be. It simply isn't. The world is out of whack, if you will. Right? This is why Solomon starts out Ecclesiastes, and he says, vanity of vanities. Right? Meaningless broken, vain. Now back to Paul in verse 20 of Romans 8. He reads, The earth was subjected to futility. Right? Interesting word. The word futility here in the Greek is the same word that was translated from the Hebrew. And what, what word do you think it is? Vanity. Vanity. So Paul says in Romans 8, For to vanity the creation was subjected. For to vanity... And he finishes his thought in 22 to 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
We groan inwardly as we await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So if I can summarize this in simple terms, hear me out. Since the fall, since sin entered creation through Adam and Eve in the garden, the world is in such a state that causes us to groan, that causes us to strive for apparent meaning, so much so that out of frustration, we would say, what's the point? So we live in a world that causes us to say, what are we doing here? This is frustrating, right? What is the problem? So the reason that the world is this way, with lack of apparent meaning, is is that it points us to an understanding that there's a problem. It points us to an understanding that ultimately we can't be fulfilled here. And, And it's inherent, right, that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. It doesn't take long to figure this out. Let's keep going. Vanity of vanity. What is vanity? We we hear this term 38 times in 12 chapters. Vanity of vanity. It's kind of hard to describe. But again, other translations use things like meaningless. Um, I've heard some people translate it wacky or like wicked wackiness. It's all out of whack. right? It's irrational. It doesn't make sense. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. And like I said, it doesn't take long to realize this. It doesn't take long to realize that this world is broken and something's missing. This is why a young married couple who has a young child can spend three years in missionary training and on the way to the airport to go to their first assignment, get killed in a car accident and leave their child behind. Anyone see the riots in Vancouver a couple weeks ago? Right After Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals, I mean, extreme, extreme anger. $4 million worth of damage. People are getting stabbed. Cars are getting burned. And why? Right? Why is this happening? Because they lost a hockey game? Like, God, God, why do I feel alone in this world? You, you say that you're going to be there for me. Why do I feel so much frustration? Why do I feel like I don't have a lot of friends why do I feel like the church isn't doing what I thought it's supposed to do? Right? Why, why are all these things happening? This world doesn't make a lot of sense. Why, why did Hurricane Katrina happen? Right? Why, do, why do we have to do what we have to do? Why did 10 million people die in Nazi Germany? Right? When, when you're little and you're in elementary school, it's, why do I have to do this? Like, I can do this on a calculator later. Right? Why is it the way that it is? Why do 16,000 children die every day of, child, of hunger-related diseases? That's a child in every five seconds. God, don't you care? Like, why is it that I spend so much time and effort and energy into telling my friends about you, but they're always continuously rejecting you? Isn't, don't you care, God? Like, why is it this way? God, I'm praying, but it doesn't seem, you don't seem to be listening. It seems meaningless. Right? Tell me you haven't asked these questions. What am I doing here? What's the point? This all seems meaningless. Certainly, Solomon asked these questions. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Another way to say this is, out of all the labor and out of all the struggle and out of all the strife and out of all the toil, what sense of satisfaction do we have? 
right? We all live lives that are full of activity, all of us, some more than others, um, but we are busy people. We're busy people. But are we ultimately satisfied with what we're doing? Right? And, and what this looks like is this, is today I just gave a sermon the first service. I'm going to give a sermon right now. I'm giving it. Um, afterwards, we have a barbecue. Then I have a meeting. And then I'm going to go home, and I hope that at the end of the day, I feel pretty good about the services. You know, if, if my sermon felt well, I'm going to have some sense of satisfaction. Like, ah, oh, great Sunday. Had good worship. I um, had good conversation. Uh, decent message. Had a good time. I learned a lot. I feel satisfied. All right, but what happens on Monday morning? I got to start all over again. I got to start all over because next Sunday I got to talk as well. And there's a lot of toil that goes into this. And the irony of it is, is that what brings, what might bring me satisfaction this afternoon might currently be bringing you toil. Right? Some of you might be thinking, man, what is he saying? It's, it's ironic, I think. It's, it's bizarre. So the question is, is there a sense of ultimate satisfaction? And why does Solomon say this? He, said this? he says this because at the end of the day, at the end of our run, life ends in one of three ways. In a box, in a can, or scattered on the earth. And most of what we've worked so hard to get is given to people who argue and fight about it, and we don't really get to spend time enjoying what we have because we spent all of our time working to get it. What's the point? Is there satisfaction under the sun? A commonly used phrase in this book, under the sun. An important phrase to get in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. Simply recognizing our current state of humanity, namely what we got from Genesis chapter 3. Our rope is broken, right? Our condition separated from God in a fallen world where death reigns. So Solomon starts out Ecclesiastes in a very just brutal, honest statement. He says, the way that the world is, everything can seem meaningless and without ultimate satisfaction. And he qualifies this statement in the rest of chapter 1 and ultimately in the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes. So here is why he says that everything can seem meaningless. Verse 4, a generation comes and a generation, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Right? Anyone get the paper yesterday? Anyone read the obituary in it? Right? Usually a life is reduced to what? A paragraph? Maybe a lot more if you did something crazy or if you left a lot of people behind? Right? All I have to do is ask the question, who knows your great, great, great grandparents? Like a couple of you are thinking, I think I know their name, right? But the fact of the matter is we don't know them. There might be a few who know their name, but ultimately they don't bear a lot of weight on our lives. It simply isn't the case. And to me, this is somewhat sad. Right? It's somewhat sad, and, and here's why. I'm super close to my grandmas. Um, my, both of my grandpas died when I was uh, about 10. They died a little bit before that. And I grew up very, very close with my grandmas. Every summer, I would visit them each of them for a couple weeks, and i just help them out as much as I could, um, you know, doing yard work, working around the house. And they poured a lot into me. They still do. I talk with them probably weekly or every other week, and I know, I know that this morning that my grandma was up at 5.30 praying for me. I know that that's true. 
And here's why I know. Because when I go to visit her and I go to her church, I meet all these old people who are saying, Josh, I know all this about you. I've been praying for you. And that is amazing to me. That's incredible. But what's super sad to think about is that when I have kids, chances are they might not even know my grandma. They might not know her at all. So Solomon says, what's the point? A generation comes, a generation goes, but the earth stays forever. Not only do we forget the past generations, but we think that our generation has the fix to all life's meaningless. Right? Is this not true? I mean, I I could go on and on about all the different philosophies of the meaning of life throughout the different centuries, which have ultimately come to today where we say, well, just figure it out on your own. You can figure out your own meaning. But it's true. Every generation comes, and every generation thinks we're more advanced than the last one, and we all think that we have the, the answer to the meaning of life's questions. Right? Solomon answers this. Keep going, verses 5 through 7. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its currents, the wind returns. All the streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Here Solomon just obliterates um, the idea of any real progress and enlightenment, because at the end of the day, we're all dead, right? He, he uses the cycle of life. He uses wind, and he uses water, and he uses sun. And, and some of us, what we like to do is we like to confuse motion or movement for progress, right? I'm busy. I'm doing a lot. And Solomon's saying, but are you getting anywhere? Are you getting anywhere? Think exercise bike, right? Think treadmill. Think those, think those pools you know, you see on the infomercials late at night where you can swim and the water current's coming at you. Think that. Think that. When, when you're, we were little, we used to just tie a rope around our ankle and, and to the side and swim, but you don't get anywhere. Right? Life is a circle, and it can seem like nothing ever gets finished. Right? Think about your day. Think about your, your life in a normal day. Right? We wake up, some of us at 6, some of us at 7, some at 10, in college, um, we put on our clothes, we eat breakfast, some of us eat breakfast, then put on our clothes, um, usually the same breakfast every day. We get into our cars, we go to work, we usually do the same thing with the same people, with the same problems, we finish something only to start something new, we come home from work, we get dinner, we take our kids to practice, we go on a walk, we pick them up from practice, we watch some TV, we go to bed. We wake up, we start again. Welcome to church, right? Like, it's, it's just this cycle. It's this cycle. And Solomon says, is it ever ending? Is it ever ending? And some of us, we think, oh, no, we're, we're educated. We're, we're far beyond this cycle. We are advanced. And Solomon says, please. He says, I'm far more educated. I got way more money. I got way more power. I got way more women. And it's not satisfying because in the end, we die. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Right? We always want more. Is this not true? Like when you're little, you want the pony. 
Right? Then you want the girlfriend. Then you want another girlfriend. Then you want the husband. Right? Then you get the kids. Then you get the house. Then you get a car. Then you get a bigger house. And then you get another car. And then you want the kids to be gone. And then they leave. And then you want them back. And then you're tired of work, so you retire. Then you're bored. And, and it's just this cycle of always wanting more, never being satisfied. And throughout it all, you always want more money. Right, So that you can buy more of what you already have because what you have isn't bringing you any satisfaction. So you think, if I buy more of what I already have, then and only then will I be happy. Right? We think that buying stuff will make us happy. And what's kind of weird is that stuff does make us kind of happy. Right? Buying and putting on a new pair of pants can make you feel a certain way. It can change the way you feel, and that's weird. I know some of you guys are thinking... I just feel itchy or comfortable with pants. Okay, like, think, think a new cell phone, right? You get a new cell phone. Like, I got the new Samsung 7G. I feel so good about my life. Right? This is true. It's, it's this bizarre cycle. Verse 9. What has been is what will be. And what has been done, it'll be done again. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new. It's, it has already, it, sorry, it has been already in the ages before us. So like I said, at the end of the day, we, we spend our money buying new things, going to new places, going on vacation, gardening, pretending that the activities that we're putting our life's efforts and energies into are something new, right? That, that we think we're going to get off the treadmill, that we think we're actually going somewhere, And we're separating ourselves from the the monotony of going nowhere, but we're simply deceiving ourselves. And I know that there's some of you who are saying, well, well, there are new things, right? We create new things. My iPad 2 is way better than my iPad 1. Okay, agreed. Um, But to say that there's nothing new in that sense is wrong. Sure, so what does he mean? What Solomon's talking about is this, this cycle of toil, of sweat, and of death, of labor, and of frustration. It doesn't end. It's the same cycle. Where sin reigns, death reigns. So at the end of the day, death reigns. What has been will be done again. Right? There's nothing new. I mean, just look at fashion. Right? If I would have kept all the clothes that my sister and I made my mom throw away from my dad, I'd have been set. I might have even been ahead of my time. So dads, keep wearing the same thing, and, and you will be there. You'll be there. It's, it's a cycle, right? This month, we pay the bills, right? What happens next month? Pay the bills again, right? We brush our teeth today. What happens tomorrow? We brush our teeth tomorrow, right? We fix our car. Our car breaks. We fix our car. Our car breaks. We fix our car. Got to get a new car. Uh-oh, that one's going to break too, right? We eat today. Hopefully after service, we're going to eat. We have to eat tonight. We'll have to eat tomorrow. Right? Think of it this way. What can you buy that in 20 years you can't replace? Or in 20 years you're not going to want something better? Not much. There's not a lot of things out there that can bring us any merit of satisfaction. Verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after very similar to verse 4. You're gone and you're forgotten. Right? Think about YouTube sensations for a second. Right? 
Who remembers Charlie, right, who bit my finger? Right, 350 million people watch that. No one's talking about him anymore. Uh, That's so eight months ago. You're gone and you're forgotten. Right, how about this? You ever have a job where you're pretty important and, and you leave and you want to come back and there's that part of you that, that when you come back and visit, you want things to not be going very well because you want to feel like you're missed and you're important. But the truth of the matter is that when you go back, you realize, man, they're just fine without me. Because when I'm gone, someone else will step up. It's this cycle. They're just fine without you. 12 through 14. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Right? We want to be rich. We want to be powerful, says Solomon. We want to be striving after importance. And Solomon says, you're like the guy running, trying to catch the wind and putting it in a jar. This is a vain waste of time. And here's why. Verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. Finally, Solomon gives us a small glimpse of the meaning of why, of why life seems meaningless sometimes. Because we can't fix ourselves. Right? We can't fix the world that we live in. We can't fix the fundamental problem that life can seem meaningless because we live in a fallen, broken world where death reigns. Right? The world isn't the way it's supposed to be. We, we can't count what isn't there. And we don't have the ability or the power or the wherewithal or the resources or the wisdom or the knowledge to change any of it. It's just simply not going to be done by us. It can't be. So Solomon says, I've said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has, been, has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. 17, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this is also but a striving after the wind. Right, this is really an amazing verse to me because it kind of reaches all aspects of culture and society. It basically says this, that if life was just different than the one that I live, then I would find meaning and joy and satisfaction. Right, but Solomon says, no, I've lived both sides of the street. I've applied my heart to wisdom, and I've also applied it to folly. And I know that it's the same on both sides of the street. So to the rich, right, to us who are rich, Oh, we just get so frustrated. There, there's so many problems in life. I have all this money. All my kids are fighting. It's just, it's, uh, if life were just more simple, right? If things were just more simple, and, and we love this notion of just the simple life, right? We kind of romanticize old Westerns where, where life's just simple, and we just ride horses, and we have great families, and kids don't move away, and we go to church on Sunday, and there's just never any problems, and, and it's so simple, Right? And then on the other side of the street, you, you have the poor. And they just say, I just want to be rich. Right? If I had more money, then I could buy a car and I wouldn't have to ride this horse. Right? And if I had more money, then I could send my kids to college and they wouldn't be here all the time causing trouble. And if I had more money, then I wouldn't have to go to church and ask God for food. I could go to Winco and I wouldn't have to garden all day. 
Right? So Solomon says on both sides of the street, it's the same thing. It's the same problem. You always want what you don't have. Verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Right? Someone said it like this. The longer you live, the more you see. The more you see, the more you know. The more you know, the sadder you become. He says, I've learned everything that can be learned. And I'm just sad because I can't find satisfaction here. Because we live in a broken world. We live in a world where sin reigns and and it's frustrating. Frustrating. Ultimate satisfaction will not be found here on earth under the sun. It simply can't be. So Solomon's words 3,000 years ago are just as true as they are today. Under the sun, life can seem meaningless. It can. So our challenge here today is what? Is to go beyond the sun. That's what we're going for. We're not going for life under the sun. We're going for life beyond the sun. And that's the only way to get off the treadmill. That's the only way that we can possibly do it. In Genesis 3, we're given more than just punishment. We're given a lot more. We're given a hope for redemption and for a renewal. In verse 15, we've been given the solution to the problem. We've been given the proto-evangelion, the first announcement of Jesus, the first announcement of the gospel. We've been given a hope that says, yes, this world is broken. Yes, this world isn't the way that it's supposed to be. But guess what? I'm making it better eventually through Jesus who's coming, who is going to restore, who's going to fix. So put your faith in him because that's the only way that you will find significance. Life over and beyond the sun is the only way that you can get off the elliptical. It's the only way. God says, yes, I am redeeming this, but it's only through Christ. So at the end of the day, This is where I want to leave our message. If you're not ready to take a real serious look at your life, a look at your activities, a look at where you spend most of your time, if you're not ready for that, if you just want to do the motions, chances are you're not going anywhere. Chances are you're stuck. Life beyond the sun is the only way to get past a world that Solomon finds so much meaninglessness in. And the truth of the matter is that I can get up here and I can say, yeah, with Christ there's, there is meaning and there is significance. And this is a true statement. But what's also a true statement is that life is messy, right? Right? Ecclesiastes is messy. Right? Solomon knows God. Like God is not a mystery to Solomon. He knows him. And he still has all these questions. But, but we're not left wondering. We're not. We're left with hope. We're left with a promise that says, you know what, no matter what happens in this life, no matter how meaningless it can seem, it's not meaningless with Christ. Because guess what? God's working what? All things for good. Is that, is that everything that I can understand? No, that's, God's working everything in my life for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. 
Right? So life beyond the sun is the only life that we can have that will say, okay, there is meaning, there is satisfaction. Even though it might not seem that way every moment of every day, with Christ and only with Christ will we get off the treadmill. And that is our hope. So we, we turn and we finish in Romans 8 where Paul says in verses 23 to 25, and not only creation, right? Creation, not only creation, but we ourselves, you and I, us here today, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope is that, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if you hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we wait right now. We're waiting. We're in this time period of patiently waiting for what? For redemption, right? Redemption of our bodies. When things are made new, when life is no longer a a, a cycle of sweat, toil, and death, because death no longer reigns when Christ returns. And that's the only hope that we have. That is the only hope that we have to be set free. So as we finish this service, we're going to be taking communion. And during this communion, I want you to take a long and hard, serious look at your life. Are you spending your life trying to buy what you already have to fill your life with some sort of temporary satisfaction that ultimately will lead you to a place of trying to get more because you'll never be satisfied? Take this time to, to really think about, what am I doing? Am am I going through all the motions without thinking about it? Am I going through life not going anywhere? Where are we headed? Because it's only with life out of the sun and beyond the sun that we will get anywhere. Let's get our bearings straight.